You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Rebecca Coombs, features editor for the BMJ. Seven years ago, Loretta Evans lost her son Colin to medical negligence. Colin was born with congenital cardiomyopathy and spent his childhood in and out of hospital. In July 2005, he was admitted with a suspected infection of his pacemaker. He was operated on and his recovery was progressing well with intravenous antibiotics. He then went on to oral antibiotics. His surgeon left on holiday. Whilst his surgeon was absent, Colin became increasingly unwell. He complained of a rash that was developing, finally covering his body. His surgeon was unavailable and none of his surgical colleagues had received the handover. Luckily, his cardiologist was in the hospital and was able to visit Colin on the surgical ward. So, thankfully, on the Wednesday afternoon, he came to the ward and he saw Colin. He called the doctor who was there at the time and he just said that somebody had to make a decision and that he was making one. He was going to ring the surgeon and he was going to take Colin back under his care and that they were to stop all antibiotic treatment. It sounds like there was a, a sort of power vacuum there that, that your son's condition was deteriorating yes, and, yes. And, that, and that there was no one clinician willing to step in and take responsibility for Colin's case. That, that was it, yes, until I managed to, to get his consultant cardiologist mm. on the case. Um, I, I suppose we, we just felt, well, you know, this was such a relief that his consultant, who we knew very well, his, the cardiologist was back, you know, attending to Colin but unfortunately there was no bed available in the medical ward at that time and unfortunately there wasn't one available until Thursday evening. So he's been treated as a medical patient on a surgical ward under the care of a cardiologist? Except at that stage, as I said, the cardiologist wasn't actually in situ in the hospital, you know, and um, on the the Thursday morning... um, the surgical team were doing their rounds and they just looked at Colin and although his condition was very, very obvious at the time, they just said he is no longer our patient. And they just moved on to do the rest of their rounds. They didn't even get in touch with the medical ward to ask that some, you know, somebody would come, give him some aid. And Peter ourselves we tried desperately you know to ask various questions to try to get help um, and unfortunately no. Colin finally died later on that Thursday because of the severe drug reaction. Initially unfortunately we didn't know who to contact and through a friend I I learned of the Irish Patients Patients Association Mm -hmm. and we met with them and they got in contact with the hospital for us and there were various communications and eventually they they organised a meeting where both the cardiothoracic surgeon and the consultant cardiologist were there while we spoke and said what had happened. Initially, the surgeon gave us Colin's medical genealogy and our son Barry just said, you know, thank you very much, but we are very much aware of that. That's not why we're here it's to do with the last week of his life when you were not around. And, and what sort of response did you get from the hospital in the immediate aftermath of, of Colin's death? Well, the, the surgeon was quite taken aback at that meeting. Mm-hmm. And um, 
he did say that um, that if we needed an inquiry, he would have no objection. Mm-hmm. So they did organise an inquiry with an independent chairman, mm-hmm. and through the, to uh, the team, we met with them initially, and then each person was interviewed and eventually they discovered um, that there were as they called it a systems failure and they made six recommendations and they included well they they included that there should be a better communication between doctors and uh, patients and patients family Mm -hmm. that there would be training given in communications to staff that um all antibiotics would be noted and would be discussed with the patient as well, that they would be made, made aware of. Colin, at the time, um, in the ward he was in, there was um, a cardiac adult nurse who would liaise between teams, but unfortunately she was on holidays right. at the time, But they, and they did recommend uh, that another nurse would be, you know, would be brought in. But the chief one for us at the time was that they recommended a new policy, a clinical inpatient handover policy between consultants. And we asked at the time that this policy should be dedicated to Colin's memory, mm-hmm. which they did. Mm-hmm. We heard this morning how um, doctors often, um, in, in tragic situations such as this, tend to can't have a tendency to sort of close down mm-hmm. and are nervous about... Uh, communicating with families um, for fear of legal action and it was very telling um, um, when you said uh, that that's not the case at all so you had the inquiry back mm. you had these six recommendations and you had the satisfaction that at least policy was going to change but there was still something else that you, you, you needed from the hospital We basically needed an apology you know we, we never wanted any financial gain that was never any any of our intention because nothing like that would ever bring Colin back. But we needed an apology. We needed um, information. We needed answers. Mm. And thankfully, we got those. And, what, and how long did it take you to get those answers, though? Uh, in all, it possibly it took us five years. Five years? Mm. Mm. I think it culminated with a, a very sort of key letter from the chief executive yes. of the hospital in Dublin. Yes, both both he and the cardiothoracic surgeon gave us letters apologising for the pain and suffering that Colin and we had endured during his treatment in the Matter Hospital. And importantly, that was a completely unqualified apology. Yes, absolutely. absolutely you know, and... It just it, it it meant so much to us because we just wanted somebody to be accountable for what had happened to him. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks very much. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. I met Loretta at the Risky Business Conference held in London last week. The conference is organised by doctors at Great Ormond Street and covers topics such as risk, human factors and patient safety. She very powerfully talked about the steps that led to her son's death. Another of the speakers was Lillian Field, medico-legal advisor at the Medical Protection Society, who joins me in the studio now. Uh, we've just heard from uh, Loretta Evans, who, who tells her tragic story of the death of her son, Colin. Um, and one of the key messages that came across was the importance of a true and fulsome apology. 
perhaps you can start off by explaining how doctors can mitigate the situation um, pretty much from the point of when the error occurs. First and foremost, a doctor must make the patient their first priority. And before saying anything, they must try and put it right clinically. That's the first thing that they have to do. An error is utterly and totally devastating for a doctor. A doctor does not go into medicine to do harm to a patient. So they may have a mix of emotions soon after the error that's been made. So they should go and seek help. So they don't do that alone. But it's the aftermath, after the dust has settled, that causes them a great deal of concern and anxiety. And the most important thing that they can do is to speak to the patient or to the relatives and apologise and explain. There is a considerable amount of reluctance and fear to do this for a whole variety of reasons, partly because they have difficulty in acknowledging the error to themselves and they must do that as a first step. If they do that, they find it easier to talk to people, both to their peers and to the patients or relatives. Their other fear must be in relation to the consequences to their career, to their personal lives, the publicity, the fear of the GMC, criminal prosecutions potentially, being sued. However, it is extremely important to remember that an apology on its own is not an admission of liability. This is set in stone in statute under Section 2 of the Compensation Act 2006, and yet doctors still fear apologising to patients. And is it true to say that there's a, there's a right way and a wrong way to apologise, and sometimes an apology can be so qualified that it has the opposite effect? Absolutely. Loretta Evans referred to a proper and meaningful apology. That is exactly what it has to be. When an error has occurred, there may be a multiple uh, number of problems that gave rise to that error, but ultimately a doctor made a mistake and there is one patient. It is that relationship between the two of them and the doctor must mean the apology to the patient. There are apologies of sympathy, which are good. We are sorry that this happened to you. This may come from someone who wasn't directly involved. But the doctor involved would be best saying, I am sorry I did this to you. It is what we refer to as an apology of responsibility. It links the doctor to the patient or to their relative. What we don't want to hear are conditional apologies. The sort of apology which says, I am sorry if you are upset. The word if is the last word we would want to hear in apology. Patients or relatives also see through formulaic apologies. There are standard apologies that trusts or any organisation will often put out following an adverse incident or a disaster patients see straight through those. They are disingenuous. What they want to hear is something that is meaningful. The doctor doesn't have to fear hiding that they are upset at what has happened, that 
they mustn't fear hiding that they feel very regretful of their action mm-hmm. in it because that is something that means probably more than anything else to the patient and their relative. And I think you've got some interesting examples of, of, of how to apologise and how not to apologise. We, You've talked about a sort of Donald Rumsfeld-type apology. Um, and I, if you can give us an example of that, because it's a, I think it's sort of kind of a classic conditional apology. Well, well, it is. It's, it's the sort of apology which states, uh, for example, if you're upset or offended, I am sorry. Um, what does that mean? It even, one can tell that I would really offend people just by saying that, mm-hmm. by the mere, mere virtue that, that, that the person who says it is doubting that the patient or relative are upset. Um, that isn't that's an insult and that Mm. must not be said it must not be qualified Mm. it mustn't doubt the patient and their feelings about the situation and more positively i think you had an example of this uh ceo of i think was it bp uh at the in the aftermath of the was it the deep water it was the gulf of mexico disaster of course the the tony haywood the ex-ceo of bp in his resignation speech he, he gave what we refer to as an apology of responsibility, saying effectively what I state, stated earlier, I am sorry what I, what I did to you. He quote, To quote him, he said, The Gulf of Mexico explosion was a terrible tragedy for which, as the man in charge of BP when it happened, I will always feel a deep responsibility, regardless of where the blame is ultimately found to lie. He's not admitting liability, but he is conveying the sense of responsibility that he has for what happened. And, and as you say, it's sort of it's 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 useful to have that structure in your mind to help you prioritise your actions following an error, because your mind goes into freefall. It's, it's it, as you say, it's a very frightening time for doctors, and there are multiple things going from through your head. My career. Will I work again? Will I be sued? Will I be on the front page of the local paper, the Daily Mail? Indeed. I think there are some very basic things to remember in in, in amongst that mist of all the emotions that you're going through. I think probably the most important thing is don't carry that burden alone. As I said earlier on, go and seek help because the person who is perhaps a little bit more distant and remote from the incident will help you as the doctor go through the right processes and take the right steps in the aftermath of an incident which will start with putting it right with the patient. Get a mentor. Contact your medical defence organisation. If needs be, take time out. If it is suggested to you that your clinical duties should be restricted for a while, don't take offence to it because the reason behind it may well be that it is to give you time out to be safe again whilst you recover yourself from the incident that has occurred. And in due course, learn and communicate what you have learned from the incident. Part of an apology is not just saying I'm sorry, it is also explaining to the patient what has happened. An explanation requires an investigation and you must contribute to that investigation. It is a, a duty of a doctor to do so. It's ensconced in the GMC guidance. Once that has been investigated and once you have learnt from it, learn and communicate what you have learned. And do you think th- that there are things that 
um, institutions can do because there might be a, a culture within an organisation that doctors or nurses may feel that you know mistakes aren't tolerated, aren't understood, that they, they won't be treated fairly. It, it, it is about ensuring that the way that an incident invest, is investigated is about understanding the cause. Most investigations, now all investigations will have a root cause analysis. It is ensuring that during that investigation that there is no attempt to blame individuals but to find out all the multitude of problems that gave rise to the incident because it is very rare that it is just one single action. Mm -hmm. There is usually contextual issues which have given rise to the adverse event. If a trust manages an investigation well and publicises the fact that they do that, bit by bit, um, trust employees, those involved in future incidents, will come to be reassured that they are not going to be blamed for it. Inevitably, however, if a mistake has been made and something needs to be learned from it on the part of an individual, then the trust must support that individual from, from in learning or a limited amount of retraining that's, ne- that's necessary, but it must be done in a constructive and supportive way. It is about a trust, it is about a hospital, a GP practice, sending out the right message that they are there to do it in a supportive way. Do doctors ever feel any pressure from their employers not to make that apology of responsibility? I don't know what the position is now. There certainly used to be the case maybe 10 years ago where doctors were told not to speak to the patient and not to make an apology. I think the position is changing and increasingly trusts recognise the value of apologies. There is still perhaps though a reluctance to let a doctor do that on their own if you want to approach the patient first. A, A doctor shouldn't be going on their own to make an apology to a patient or a relative. They should be accompanied by someone but they should be allowed to make that apology of responsibility mm-hmm. between the what I did to you, the, the I and the you. I have not heard recently of trusts preventing doctors from doing that, but that may well be the case. I think it is an evolving situation. Mm-hmm. So if trusts are actively dissuading doctors from making an apology, how can a doctor deal with that? I think that's an extremely difficult question to answer. Their GMC code has to come first, and I think this is something that they have to discuss with their employers and their Mm -hmm. trust Mm -hmm. and say, look, this is the position that I'm in. I would like to give this apology to the patient. I've discussed it with my medical defence organisation. This is my guidance that I have to follow. Mm -hmm. I must apologise, and I want to apologise. Please let me do that. I think it would be a very unwise trust that would dissuade a doctor from making that apology if that is what they wanted to do. Remember, of course, that an apology is not an admission of liability, Mm -hmm. and trusts do recognise that. And we heard at Risky Business from Arthur Gillis, who's CEO of the largest um, hotel chain in Africa, who, who gave a great example of 
of, of how to do this right. He talked about running towards a problem, not instead of running away. He had an error in his hospital, in his one of his hotels. Somebody had failed to put shatterproof glass on top of a glass table, and a guest was injured, slipped, and their arm went through the glass table, and the hotel just clicked into action. They 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 took the 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 um, guest to hospital. They flew his his parents down to the hotel. Um, his staff are empowered to say sorry on the spot and, and his point was if you're um, empowering a nurse to look after a patient throughout the night <laughs> um, you should empower them to, to say sorry. I agree. I think patient. I think a doctor should be empowered to say story, sorry on the spot. I, I, As I say, I'm not sure exactly what the situation is now except that doctors are reluctant to make that apology. Maybe because they are not encouraged to do so by mm-hmm. their trusts. Mm-hmm. I am not sure, but I may be wrong, that they're not any longer actively, actively told not to t- say sorry. I think, that the, I think that the position is changing on that score, but more needs to be done to encourage them to say sorry. Mm-hmm. Great. Thanks very much. A video of Loretta telling her story will be appearing on the Risky Business website soon. And in the meantime, there's a great blog on bmj.com forward slash blogs about that South African hotel chain and how they've embraced saying sorry. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.